You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. The charity Médecins Sans Frontières has warned that the world is losing the battle against the disease. Medical charity Médecins Sans Frontières says the Ebola outbreak in West Africa has overwhelmed its teams in Liberia. The international actors need to step up. They actually need to deliver action and they need to do it now and not in six or eight weeks. Our treatment centres are full to capacity. We have people dying at the gates outside because they can't get in. Ebola out of control in West Africa, according to Médecins Sans Frontières, where the deadliest outbreak on record is spreading like wildfire. There just doesn't seem to be an end to this. We just have patient after patient after patient. It's extremely distressing because at the moment the outcome, the mortality rate is uh, above 90%. That means people who go in, very, very few of them walk out. The charity Médecins Sans Frontières has warned that the world is losing the battle against the disease. Many wonder what might have happened had the world only acted sooner. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. 2014 was undoubtedly a tragic year. It appeared as though the entire world was at war. Fighting raged in Ukraine. Conflict continued in South Sudan and Central African Republic. Operation Protective Edge ruined scores of lives in Israel and Palestine, and Syria descended further into chaos. But the news that dominated the headlines concerned an invisible threat gripping West Africa. Over the course of the Ebola outbreak, more than 11,000 people died, with nearly 5,000 of those deaths occurring in Liberia alone. Liberia was relatively untouched by the virus at the start of the outbreak compared to neighbouring Sierra Leone and Guinea. The country and the aid organisations on the ground were lulled into a false sense of security. The national health system was unprepared to cope with the explosion of cases when the situation rapidly worsened at the end of July 2014. In the space of two months, the number of cases went from fewer than 10 in June to more than 1,000. Pierre Trebovich, an anthropologist and health promoter, arrived in Liberia's capital, Monrovia, in August, during the peak of the crisis. People were dying at the gates of MSF's Elwa 3 facility, the largest Ebola center ever built, as there simply weren't enough beds, and it was Pierre's job to turn people away. The following is a true story written by Pierre. The words are read by actor Charlie de Bromhead. Soon after arriving in Monrovia, I realized that my colleagues were overwhelmed by the scale of the Ebola outbreak. Our treatment center, the biggest MSF has ever run, was full, and Stefan, our field coordinator, was standing at the gate turning people away. This wasn't a job that we had planned for anyone to do, but somebody had to do it, and so I put myself forward. For the first three days I stood there, it rained hard. People were drenched, but they carried on waiting because they had nowhere else to go. The first person I had to turn away was a father who had brought his sick daughter in the trunk of his car. He was an educated man, and he pleaded with me to take his teenage daughter, saying that while he knew we couldn't save her life, at least we could save the rest of his family from her. 
At that point, I had to go behind one of the tents to cry. I wasn't ashamed of my tears, but I knew I had to stay strong for my colleagues. If we all started crying, we'd be in trouble. Other families just pulled up in cars, let the sick person out, and then drove off, abandoning them. One mother tried to leave her baby on a chair, hoping that if she did, we would have no choice but to care for the child. I had to turn away one couple who arrived with their young daughter. Two hours later, the girl died in front of our gate, where she remained until the body removal team took her away. We regularly had ambulances turning up with suspected Ebola patients from other health facilities, but there was nothing we could do. We couldn't send them anywhere else. Everywhere was, and still is, full. Once I entered the high-risk zone, I understood why we couldn't admit any more patients. Everyone was completely overwhelmed. There are processes and procedures in an Ebola treatment center to keep everyone safe, and if people don't have time to follow them, they can start making mistakes. It can take 15 minutes to dress fully in the personal protective equipment, and once inside, you can only stay for an hour before you're exhausted and covered in sweat. You can't overstay or it starts getting dangerous. The patients are also really unwell and it's a lot of work to keep the tents clean of human excrement, blood and vomit and to remove the dead bodies. There was no way of letting more patients in without putting everyone and all of our work at risk. But explaining this to people who were pleading for their loved ones to be admitted and assuring them that we were expanding the centre as fast as we could was almost impossible. All we could do was give people home protection kits containing gloves, gowns and masks so that they could be cared for by their loved ones with less chance of infecting them. A week ago, MSF's president spoke at the UN and called on states with biohazard response capability to urgently send teams to West Africa. To have any hope of getting the outbreak under control, we need more treatment beds for Ebola patients and we need them yesterday. We are worried that if left to UN agencies and NGOs, it'll take too much time to respond. More lives will be lost and the virus will spread even further. MSF is currently providing 160 beds in Monrovia. We will soon have 200 and we will carry on expanding as fast as we can. But we are stretched to capacity by our work elsewhere on the outbreak and through the rest of the world. In Monrovia, we estimate that there needs to be more than a thousand beds to treat every Ebola patient. There are currently just 240 in total. Until that gap is closed by treatment centres with hundreds rather than the small numbers pledged so far, the misery of turning people away at our gates will continue. After one week on the gate, my colleagues told me to stop. They could see the emotional toll that it was taking on me. That same afternoon, a nurse came to find me saying there was something I had to see. Whenever people recover, we have a small ceremony for the patients who are discharged. Seeing the staff gather to celebrate this exceptional moment, hearing the words of the discharged patients as they thank us for what we did, gives us all a good reason to be there. Looking around, I saw tears in all of my colleagues' eyes. Sometimes, there are good reasons to cry.
The story we've just heard appeared in The Guardian in September 2014. Since then, Pierre has been on other missions to Guinea, Congo and Greece. We managed to get hold of Pierre just before he left for his next mission. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today, Pierre. My pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for having me. So I think one question that people are going to ask after hearing that story is why, why did you um, put yourself forward for that job? Well, at some point I said to one friend, you know, if people like me don't go, who else is going to go? It was a way to tell him that, um, that I felt I was ready to go to such a place and to do such a job. Um, when I was there, I met so many different people with so many different profiles, and yet we had all the same thing in common. We have to do something, and we, we have to try to do some things, and it's not easy, and at some point we didn't know what to do and how to do it. I don't know, I guess lots of us had different reasons, personal reasons to go there, but in the end, we had to do something. Mm. And, wh- and why did you volunteer to, to put yourself on the gate to, to tell people that the, the centre was full? The main reason is I realised that the one at the gates at the moment uh, needed uh, support. He could not uh, do that alone. As a non-medical, I was quite uh, available to, to help in any way possible. That's one reason. The second reason is people at this gate, they, for the sake of uh, everybody else. And really, it's to take the time to explain to someone um, the impossible, even if it's it, impossible to explain they deserve someone to try to tell them i mean how, how did you deal with it on an emotional level i mean it, i i just can't imagine putting myself in your shoes and doing that job um no emotionally it was difficult really on a on a, on a day-to-day basis i mean it didn't last many many days i think something like 10 days or, or but, um, I mean, it was every morning you wake up, you go to the medical meeting, um, you get some numbers and, and you get some pictures of the situation of the night. And, and then, you know, OK, let's let's do that again until the situation changes. But uh, in the meantime, let's let's go and do it. And the medical people, they will go into the high-risk area and they will try to save people and, and me I will do what I can at the gate and and then we have other people taking care of other business in the city like uh, burying the burning the bodies or, or or managing the security or managing the administrative stuff so everybody was doing something mm. so c- could you tell us a bit more about about your actual your your job so you were you were a health promoter in Liberia is that right uh, I was officially I was an anthropologist, but at the same time doing health promotion. So health promotion is all the non-medical ways to improve the health and the control over your own health. So non-medical ways it can be information or communication. If you know about a disease, uh, then you will have a better way to prevent uh, this disease. So information is a way to have a better health. Mm. As an anthropologist on such an um, epidemic, you are supposed to convince the people to come to the center. You, have, you are supposed to try to um, uh, demystify such a center because it's like a big hospital and you don't know what's happening inside. So part of my job is to explain to people what's happening inside and to, to show them that it's a safe area, as safe as it can be. So literally to explain them what's happening inside, like basic stuff. Yeah, you will get free food, you will get a bed, you will get showers, you will get people 
to check on you whenever you need and whenever we can. So that's the, the theory. It's to convince people to come inside. And the fact at that point in Mon Monrovia, my job was to do the opposite. It was to explain them why we could not let them inside. So that's when we, I realized that, okay, this epidemic is way, we don't have the control over it at the, at the time. Hmm. Um, a lot of people wouldn't think that you know MSF would employ anthropologists to go to the field. If you go to the field with MSF as an anthropologist, it's, it's your job to talk with local people to understand the culture and then to apply that to um, the way MSF works in the area. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's a way to 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 learn about the cultures, um, mostly to adapt our service to the cultures and not to adapt the people to our service. It's really to have this adaptation. Can we incorporate um, a traditional healthcare from Congo into a modern uh, MSF medical protocol? Is it possible? Yeah, sometimes it is. Okay, we can really cope with the tradition of people and at the same time do our, our job as, as we do it. So we don't impose ourselves to people if we can adapt. And so we need to be observant about the context and the people and the traditions. And, and it's a fascinating job. And um, like I said, I'm learning. <laughs> it's not that I pretend I know how to do it, but probably I know um, the posture to, to take. We'd actually met in 2014 in, in South Sudan during a cholera outbreak. Did that outbreak prepare you at all for Liberia? Yeah, completely. I mean, South Sudan was my first mission. I had no real experience with such a context. And I was already in South Sudan for a few months and this cholera outbreak came and we knew it was coming. We were prepared for that. Um, I saw my first uh, dead bodies. I saw, uh, for the first time of, in my life, I had to go to a family and explain them how we were going to take care of the burial. Then I learned about all the infection uh, control and prevention of infection. So what to do in, in a cholera outbreak. And, and basically, it's quite similar to an Ebola outbreak. So yes, it completely prepared me to go, to go there. And that's when I realized because when the cholera outbreak happened in South Sudan, um, the Ebola epidemic already started and we already had colleagues uh, on the field. So that's when I realized I was probably going there. Mm. Okay. Can you, you mentioned it in your, in your story a little bit, but can you just describe for our listeners what it feels like to wear the personal protective equipment inside the high-risk zone? <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I, I, I wore that, that equipment just a few times, really, to, to see the conditions inside. So I, I cannot compare myself to the nurse and doctors and logisticians who go there every day, uh, many times a day. Uh, I mean, this is really a burden. It's, it's, you are in Liberia, it's the hot season, um, it's really hot, it's really humid, and then you have this full plastic um, protective equipment. It is hot. It is really hot. And it's already difficult to be in Africa with such a weather. And then you have to wear that. Um, basically, after a few minutes, after maybe half an hour, you are sweating, you are thirsty, you are uh, dehydrated, and um, and you really have to keep control over 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 your your body. And okay. At some point, it's too much, then you have to, to go back. And it's okay to go back. And then, I mean, for the people who do scuba diving, um, I find some similarities. You are with a gear, protecting yourself, and you cannot do the same without that gear. 
it's literally if you are scuba diving you cannot remove your um, your oxygen bottle uh, no you have to keep it and you have to go slowly 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 back to the surface it is the same in the ebola high risk world you cannot rush outside and you cannot remove your uh, your uh, mask it's no mm. it's too much i'm going back slowly i'm following the the, the protocol and then i'm leaving um this might be a bit of a, a tough question, but do you think, you know, when you were standing on the gate and you were turning people away, do you think MSF did all it could do to fight the outbreak in Liberia? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, at the time, uh, in Monrovia and also in Brussels and also everywhere, we were doing what we could. And I think we stressed that many times that it's not about, um, it's not about money and it's not about uh, logistics. Uh, it's about uh, human resource. That's what we were lacking of. We needed people to come and help us in MSF, but also um, outside MSF, other organizations. That's the main thing we needed at the time. It's people to come and help us and help the people uh, in West Africa. We were doing what we could. And of course, we did uh, mistakes and we learned a lot. And there is still a process going on about learning about this, this uh, intervention. Um, but at the time, I mean, just doing what we could and... Of course, we could improve, but um, there was not much place to um, to criticize ourselves um, right away. Something else you mentioned in the article is the counterbalance between, you know, turning people away, but but also seeing people survive the disease. Could you tell us a bit about what the team went through when a when a patient was discharged from the center? The first one I, I remember is the first patient that was cured. John Doe was his name. This was amazing, and of course, it was a celebration for him, uh, for the for the staff. It was a, a success. His daughter came, and, and she was afraid of her father. And I had to tell her, you know, he's cured. He's a healthy man. He's in a good uh, shape, and I'm not allowed to touch any of my colleagues because that's our protocol. But then I I shook his hands in front of her daughter just to tell her, you know, this man is he's good now. We took. A long time for the first patient, of course, to brief them about the consequences of their survival. We told them that maybe it's not going to be easy to go back to your community. But in a way, now you are also a health promoter. You can go back to your community and you can explain to people what's happening inside. And then people will be less afraid to come to the Ebola Center. So you are part of the intervention now. I mean, that was for the first patient. And of course, after... After a month, we had uh, dozens and dozens of, of people surviving. Every time it was a, a good thing to, to see that. That was one of the biggest difficulties with the response to Ebola was not just the treatment inside the management centres, but trying to combat the stigma of patients who were released and um, survived Ebola. Did your job also entail going into the communities to try and reintegrate people into society after leaving the centres? It was part of the job. I mean, not in Monrovia because it was really the, the high peak of this of this epidemic. But uh, afterwards, I went in uh, in Guinea, uh, in Gekedu, where we had uh, another Ebola center, and there I was uh, supervising a health promoter, and a few of them were survivors, and really they they. They were helping ourselves to reach the community because they were from this community and because they came through this uh, center. So it was, it was really them helping us and helping the, the whole intervention. 
the survivors, they have a, they have a tough time. Literally, they have um, physical um, consequences about the disease, but it's mostly about social uh, difficulties. And the whole health system of the of these three countries collapsed during the, the epidemic. And uh, it's not easy for them to find um, proper health care either. Mm. And they need some, either mental health care or... Um, proper healthcare. So yeah, you mentioned there that you went to Guinea, and so in the last two years, you've been to South Sudan, you've been to Liberia, Guinea, Congo, uh, and Greece. Uh, yeah. Was um, was Liberia the hardest mission for you? Yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, what I did there, I didn't do it elsewhere, and um, I mean, that was the most extreme uh, mission I did for sure. But then every context has its its own specificities and, and, and difficult things and, and happy sides also. Even Greece, you know, what's happening in Greece right now, what's happening in Europe now, is really, really complex and difficult. And even if it's not a medical crisis, it is uh, really complex and, and it is a sad situation to, to see, to live and, and to work with. But you obviously carried on working with MSF. Is it something that you're going to be doing for a long time to come? <laughs> we will see. Let's, let's say I, I, I do one mission at a time, but um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like when I went to Liberia, I told you I have to go there for some personal reason. And I still feel the same. It's not a well-paid job. Uh, still, <laughs> it's a job and I like what I do. I like the people I meet. I like to learn and I learn a lot. So um, yeah, I might still try to think about what else I'm going to do, but right now I'm going to continue for sure. That's great. It was really, really nice to talk to you again. It's been, um, yeah, 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 really it's nice. been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, ho- hopefully we'll, we'll sort of meet up again somewhere in the um, in the future. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Thank you Pierre. You Cheers, mate. Okay. Bye bye. So that's it for this episode. If you have any questions about anything you heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk/podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted a link to the article on the Guardian, as well as further info about Ebola and MSF's response. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore uk on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider, or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.